Does an artist really retire? Stay tuned. Good afternoon. I'm Chrissy Hewitt. Issues and Ideas continues now with Ears on Art, a twice-monthly program devoted to the exploration of the visual arts. Co-host Stephen Luque and I produce a program here at the studios of KCBX Public Radio. Today is the first of a two-part program featuring artist Rachel Wynn Yawn. That's W-I-N-N. Y-O-N. Rachel claims to be retired, and that may be in terms of how much exhibiting she's doing, but she will, by her own admission, always be an artist. Stephen and I meet up with her at her home in Los Osos. The occasional squeaks and groans that you hear are from the wonderful wooden chairs that we were sitting in. Rachel Yawn, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi, Stephen. Hello, everyone. Rachel, you've actually been on this program, we decided, maybe 15, 16 years ago. In fact, it was the first, I believe, of our holiday stories. You told a wonderful one about a copper roof that you acquired. Yes, that's true. (laughs) And in those days, it was with Bill Beeson. Hardly a program goes by where I don't miss that voice and that person telling us a story. And that theme was something like the best gift I've ever given or received. And so as a printmaker, a whole bunch of copper was pretty exciting, right? Very exciting, very exciting. And I um, gifted it to other artists as well. So its results are still out there. (laughs) Well, we can back up even farther than 16 or 17 years ago. So when did art start for you? I can't remember a time when I didn't have a pencil or a crayon or something in my hand. I always had art materials, very poor ones during the Second World War. I remember the crayons had no pigment whatsoever in them. They were just mostly wax. But my older siblings learned somehow, I don't know how they concluded this, that I could be kept quiet for a while if they just gave me a piece of paper and a pencil or a crayon, and I would draw things for them. And then they would say to me, and I was suspicious of this, they would say, this is so wonderful, can you do another one? I knew there was some trick involved in this, but uh, I would trot off and do another whatever it was, cat, rabbit, some, some sort of animal, especially farm animals. So this kept you in a different location from them, quiet and quiet away. Quiet and away from them for maybe five minutes at a time, I think. They must have conned you into a lot of drawings. <laughs> they did indeed, but um, alas, none of them have survived. <laughs> But when I started to school, even in maybe third grade, I was the school artist. So I would go around and decorate the, the blackboards with chalk at Christmas time, at Easter, Valentine's Day. 
I was a, a very active child, so I realized that, too, was kind of a trick because I didn't organize people to jump out of the window or something as long as I was drawing or <laughs> busy doing something. So, Were you contemplating that kind of organization? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did manage to do that on a couple of occasions. I still have a scar to prove it on my leg. That when the teacher had to go to the principal's office one time, I said, let's all jump out of the window. And we did, and it was a pretty high window, so ouch, I got a, <laughs> I got a bad hurt on my leg. <laughs> but anyway, art has been my life, I would say, from the time I was can remember. Of course, when, it, when we were a fa- farm family, there were six, uh, five siblings, so six of us. And we were in South Carolina in Anderson County. And a beautiful place to be a child in. Um, I had little knowledge about segregation and the more harsh realities of what went on in the South. But it was still there in the background somewhere. And as soon as I could manage, I left the South and uh, have never looked back or regretted it. I mean, I still love my family. I'm still very much in contact with my my uh, nieces and nephews. And um, I think at one time they did refer to me, my sisters and brothers, and maybe my family, my parents too, uh, referred to me as um, the artist who it's not a good idea to emulate her. Do not... <laughs> Do not do what your aunt or your <laughs> your sister did. So, so you were like the black sheep. In a way, I mean, nobody ever called me black sheep to my face. But one time, I asked a nephew. I said, "Tell me the truth now. What do people say when I'm not around?" And I said, "Is black sheep a, a name that I might have?" Well, he hesitated a little bit, and he said, well, Aunt Rachel, I guess so. (laughs) He was not too forthcoming. And my father and mother, uh, when I got my B.A. degree at a local college, both said, you're so good at teaching. And I had informed them early on that I was not ever going to be an art teacher. Uh, that I was going to be an artist, an artist who talked sometimes, but no, I was going to be an artist. I had had my first student when I was 13, and Betty <laughs> Betty was 12. And we were, both of us, we were kind of restless and never had enough to do. So the English teacher hired me to, to go out with Betty Hanks on probably every... Saturday, I don't remember now, for quite a long time, maybe as long as a year, to draw landscape. And it was pre any kind of drawing lessons for me or anything. And so when I made a roof, it it was not really accurate. (laughs) And I I knew there was something wrong with it, but Betty, my innocent uh, student, did not see anything wrong with it. So she just would look at my paper and copy it and it all we were all happy about it even her mother who who had caused it to happen 
it's always intriguing to me when I'm hearing people talk about childhoods that seem to have a lot of kind of built in perhaps freedom or other kinds of things going on. And it certainly wasn't that I was under lock and chain by any mm -hmm. means. I didn't live in a place where you got to, oh, go out for the day and come home at some point. Is that sort of how you had it? Yes. My youngest brother and I would um, go out and be in the woods all day long, given the opportunity. And my mother would always caution us because we did have gypsies that came to the southeast. My mother would say to us, you have to be back by dark. You know the gypsies could take you away. And I would think to myself, mm -hmm, that would be so exciting <laughs> to be stolen by the gypsies. And we always had a collie dog uh, named Shep. I mean, there was one Shep after another, and Shep was kind of the, the nursemaid, and he would be with us in the woods or wherever we were. But yes, we had a lot of freedom. It uh, makes me very sad when I see my grandchildren, and who are mostly grown up now, but when they were little, they could never be alone or outside. Anywhere near any of the alligator ponds? Or any of that activity? No, we were more in the uh, mid-state. Uh, we had a stream that ran through our, our farm, and my dad at one point made a fish pond. My dad was, and my two older brothers were kind of wimpy. They didn't hunt or fish very much. But my dad thought it would be such a pleasurable thing for his friends to come, and if they wanted to fish, they could fish in the pond so I'm sorry is the wimpy definition a sort of the cultural one of the south if you weren't out hunting and doing these things or yes yes and and I didn't realize that the men in my my immediate family were not hunters or uh, they didn't have any big deer heads on their walls there was one very wealthy family in the uh, community and that man went to Africa every year and he really did get big game and I remember it was on a balcony in their southern mansion and it was so terrorizing to go climbing up those steps and and rush by the animals to get to my <laughs> my friend's room it was just terrifying I have friends uh, who have since passed, but they live here and lived here in San Luis Obispo, and he was a big game hunter as well. And I remember he had this broad hallway that ran the entire length of his house, lined with animal heads in them. It was the most frightening thing to go through. Yes. I mean, then these were on the balcony, so you had to go up the stairs and, and to get to my friend's intriguing room. Yeah, very frightening. You're listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Our guest today is Rachel Wynne Yawn, specializing in printmaking, but interested in many disciplines. We continue now as she discusses the influences of childhood on how she has continued throughout her life to see the world. You have indicated that you basically started life with art, doing it, creating. Are you conscious now of ways in which this childhood, this upbringing has an influence on the kind of things that you see or 
like to create in your imagery? Very much so. I still, you know, my work is mostly figurative, uh, even though when I got my BA degree, abstract expressionism was at its peak. (laughs) So whether I wanted to or not, I had to uh, do abstract expressionism to be in the running with everybody else. So, And I found that I could do it with great abandon, and I did. And then when I got my BA degree, I just went to the back of the huge old-fashioned art building and put everything into the dumpster because I knew I was never going to do that again. One should say never say never because now that I'm a retired artist, I find that I love doing small abstracts and uh, I kind of keep one going all the time and I like that. Some of them turn into cards, but most of them are just... uh, for the pleasure of putting the colors and textures down. I like doing that a lot. It took me a long time to go through art school. I started out with a scholarship for going to a local college in the South uh, for art. Excuse me, was this where you had your Got your BA, or is this yes, after the BA? Yes, I went through college in in South Carolina, and okay. uh, it's now a university, and it's a pretty happening place, I guess. <laughs> I still get their fancy brochures and so forth. But anyway, I elected not to take that scholarship. I got married instead. In fact, re- just recently, my granddaughter asked me, how old were you, Grandma, when you got married? And I had to say very quietly, I was 19. (laughs) And she was was asking me for a real reason because she wanted to get married. And I guess that if it works, it's a little hard to say don't do it at 19 or whatever the parents want to hear. I did not say a word to her. But later, I and because of a tragedy in my life, I married a young man who um, was a second lieutenant in the Air Force, and when he got his degree, he also got that commission, and so we went off together, and he started to become a jet pilot, and while he was still in training, he died, Mm. and I was five months pregnant, Mm. so I got good benefits, good insurance, good health care, which I still have today, so then I started going to school. Some people, my artist friends, would tease me. Oh, well, you go to school all the time. You're probably going to have a Ph.D. in painting, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Especially after I came to California, I dipped into a lot of art schools. So I have a broad knowledge of what was out there to do as far as art schools. And the disciplines? I know that you have done quite a bit of printmaking, but did you, in all of that, dipping into different art schools, were you doing different kinds of study, or did you establish a path and kind of stick with it? I pretty much established a a path and stuck with it. I'm a left-handed person, so I see mirror image very well. One of my friends, um, who was a faculty wife at UCLA when I lived in Santa Monica, said, 
Rachel, you would be a natural printmaker. You're always transposing numbers. And so she and I started out. She wanted to take printmaking. And uh, we used her husband's parking place on the campus. And so we, we took a number of printmaking classes at UCLA. And that's actually where I started. And then I went to Otis and I ended up at Claremont and with Jim Fuller, after just working almost one-on-one with him, he was a fabulous person, and I'm sure he was a good printmaker, though isolated out in Claremont. I said to him very sadly, Jim, I can't afford the time or the money to keep coming to Claremont. He said, well, I tell you what, I think you should go to Cal State L.A., they will leave you alone because you know what you're doing and what you want to do. And he said, the biggest career mistake I ever made was leaving Cal State L.A. He said, I thought Claremont would have more prestige and more opportunity. And he said, I found out pretty soon that that salary made a difference. (laughs) (laughs) So he advised me to go to Cal State LA, and he was right about it. I mean, but the only problem I had there was that I had to gather up all of the uh, units that I had to, you know, for all the places I'd gone, and I had to keep asking, are you going to count this? Are you going to count that? And I didn't know actually until about a month before I graduated whether they would give me credit for all of those units or not. But they did, and I'm sure it was because I was so persistent about it. I just (laughs) did not let up. (laughs) We haven't talked to a printmaker for a while, Mm -hmm. and I think that probably it's a good idea to help people understand why the left-handed mirror image concept has a value in printmaking? Well, I think it's because, um, of course, when you you draw your image on a plate of some kind, it can be a plastic plate, it can be a copper plate, it can be a zinc plate, and then you print from that indirect, uh, you, you ink it up and print from that image. And uh, so, of course, the when it comes out on the piece of paper, it is mirror image to what you see on the plate right. itself. So um, it, it has served me well. I was in printmaking for a while, and I think that was one of the most difficult things to learn was how to create imagery and think about it in the, in the mirror image and how it was going to come out. That was not my difficulty. I had many other difficult problems, but but that was not mine. And I have a nephew still in the Southeast who really, really wanted to be an artist, but his father and mother had more influence over him, so he had to become a doctor instead. And he said it was terrible when he was wanting to be a pilot. He restored old, old uh, airplanes. He said, I would have to just put the whole thing of what they were saying to me of, uh, before I landed the plane. And he said, I never knew if I would really come in the right way. But he said, when it came to 
looking into cadavers and doing uh, certain operations that I had to learn in med school, he said, I could ace that every time because I could see it backwards, forwards, and upside down. <laughs> so he apparently had the same handicap that I did, which sometimes a handicap can become a, a positive aspect. Oh, I think so. And I think that obviously in the last few decades, we've done so much more to try to help understand different kinds of ways that the brain takes things in and puts them back out so mm -hmm. that those challenges can equalized a little bit or understood better so that you're not mm -hmm. just seen as somebody who can't do anything at all. But it is interesting. I think that that whole sense of, okay, if I'm thinking of a composition from left to right and it's going to end up looking from right to left by the time it's done, definitely is something that I'm sure I would go through several kind of macerations of something before I go, oh, that's right. <laughs> and lettering is particularly challenging. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, and for us dyslexics, lettering is challenging anyway. I mean, I spent two years of my printmaking life doing photo silkscreen printing. And I still have one or two examples of it. When I got my uh, master's degree, I got a certificate that said I could teach it up through junior college. Mm -hmm. So I became the assistant of Isabel Anderson, who was teaching at Pasadena City College at the time. It was not in the fine arts department. It was in another building altogether, but it had... Uh, all the equipment for putting coating on the silk screen so that it could receive the image from the film that we developed. And I had taken photography as an undergraduate, so I was very comfortable in the dark room, and that's why Isabel wanted me to help her with this big project. I kept chickens at the time that we, in Pasadena at the time we were doing the, the photo silkscreen printing and I would make multiple pictures of my chickens and then blow them up Andy Warhol style. I was going to say, you're blowing up the image, not the chicken, right? <laughs> oh, right, right, not the, not the chickens. The hunter came out at last. <laughs> no, 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 never. They were pets, <laughs> so, almost. I mean, they gave good eggs, but anyway. Okay, I'm going to back up just a second, because we haven't talked about photo screen, no. I don't think. Mm -hmm. So you're responsible for initially photographing an yes, image? you have to take an image, and then you have a copy camera in which you can um, make the negative, which can be first a negative, and then you make it into a positive, and you just, by increments, keep blowing it up, blowing it up, until finally the image of it is almost destroyed. Very much what Andy Warhol did and made famous. And when I would get frustrated with myself for not being able to work fast enough, I would think, well, Andy Warhol has a whole group of people who help him with his projects, and I have none, <laughs> zero. I even have to help other people since I'm helping to teach this class. But it was a wonderful experience, and Isabel Anderson was... Uh, 
a marvelous woman and teacher, and I'm sorry to say she used so many toxic chemicals in this process that she later had a stroke, and mm -hmm. I've completely lost touch with her. Very different from the etching and the dry point and the aquatint methods that I had used uh, before. So your printmaking was primarily in Talio? Yes. Okay, we get to keep making sure that we have definitions for the public out there because, as I say, it's been a while since we've talked to printmakers, so you've rattled off three or four, so if you want to back up a bit. Well, uh, Stephen used the term intaglio, and that also includes um, not only the line etching, which you draw into a plate that's been covered with uh, asphaltum or some other kind of covering to keep the acid off the parts you don't want it to get on. But then there is a method, which now I'm afraid comes mostly out of uh, uh, spray cans. <laughs> but in the olden days, and I had one in my own studio ultimately in Pasadena, you had an aquatint box and you put resin on a, in the bottom of the aquatint box and then you put your plate on a shelf about midway up in the aquatint box. And the whole box was pretty high. The one I had was about, oh, maybe six feet tall and uh, about four feet wide. So after I'd done the line drawing and taken proofs of that, then I would decide on the areas that I wanted to do um, aquatint on. And so I would start with putting the whole plate back into the aquatint um, chamber and just um, blowing the particles of resin around. And then I had a hot plate that you had to be very careful not to burn it on, but to get it just enough to stick onto the plate. And then I would start with the lightest color these were all shades of gray, of course, so the lightest gray I would leave in for maybe seconds mm -hmm. and then take it out and proof it. And so it's a tedious process, but very rewarding. And then if I would have another shade of gray that would be a little darker, I would put it back in and do that and put it in the acid bath and so on and so forth until I had very, very dark grays or blacks. It would look like a continuous uh, shade, but actually if you looked at it with a loop, you could see that it was dot, dot, dot all over. <laughs> yes. And we should point out that in between each of these acid dips, you are actually putting resist down on yes. those areas oh, that you want right. to stay white yes. or light gray and then the next yes. one to look yes. that gray yes. and exactly. you're slowly blocking all of these areas out as it's going into the acid yes. bath. You have to um, be in pre a pretty good frame of mind because it's a long slog to get from from the just the line etching to the shades of gray also. Very rewarding. Are you able to check it along the way? Well, yes, you have to make proofs along the way. Okay. And then sometimes if it's not really to your liking, you either have to go back and darken it or you have to scrape what you've done off with a stylus that's made for scraping. <laughs> 
But as I say now, most of the uh, Aquatint is, that's done currently, it comes from a spray bottle. It works beautifully. Yes, we used uh, spray paint and enamel spray paint just held very high in the air so that yes. this very yes. fine mist of little particles fell down and that's what we would use. That's uh-huh. how we would start. Yes, it does work. You have been listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio. Our guest today has been Rachel Wynn Yawn, a resident of Los Osos and a longtime Central Coast artist who has displayed her work not only around the county, but around the state and elsewhere. We continue this conversation next week. There are many chances to see art in this county. Right now, at the Art Center in Morro Bay, you can see on and off the wall paintings and sculptures by Central Coast artists. The Art Center is at 835 Main Street in Morro Bay, and they are open daily from 12 to 4. This is Chrissy Hewitt, and on behalf of Stephen Taluke, want to thank you for listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX. <laughs> <laughs>